This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord had made all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. And so it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was in all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Let's just stop there. We'll we'll go to Ephesians 6 a little bit later. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. I find it fascinating uh, that this Egyptian, who in all probability was a worshiper of Ra, the Egyptian sun god, and Isis, the Egyptian mother goddess, that he should see this Hebrew God, Jehovah, the one true and living God, in his servant, his slave, this Hebrew, while he was going about his daily business. Verse 2 says, the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph knew that. We know that. But how did Potiphar know that? Because verse 3 says, and the master saw that the Lord was with him. Simple. He saw him how he conducted himself. And when he saw how he conducted himself in the workplace, because this was his workplace, though he was a slave. And it was through that that Potiphar saw Jehovah. When it says he saw the Lord, that's what the word means, Jehovah. Now Potiphar, this high-ranking official, a pharaoh, no doubt had any number of slaves. And all of them, of course, uh, would do the jobs they were compelled to do. And all of them, I suppose, were diligent enough to do them because we'll betide them if they didn't. And so Potiphar was in charge of the royal prison. And they knew that. And so it would be a big mistake if they got on the wrong side of Potiphar because of the power that he had. Joseph knew Potiphar's profession. Joseph was a slave also. Joseph for sure did not want to get on the wrong side of Potiphar, but Joseph was different. And although he was a slave, he had an entirely different reason to please Potiphar. And the reason was because before he was ever Potiphar's servant, he was Jehovah's servant. He was a servant of the Lord. And that's why Paul, in his letters, always referred himself never as a prisoner of Rome, but always as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Because he felt he was a prisoner of Jesus Christ, then it really didn't matter what Rome did to him, because he was already a prisoner of Christ. And so, Joseph here, the best way he felt to please his heavenly master was to please his earthly master. 
and his whole attitude of serving was far above all the rest of the slaves. No wonder then that Potiphar, watching him closely and seeing his attitude, his demeanor, seeing him conscientious, hardworking, loyal, faithful, no wonder then he promoted him. And as we read there, he promoted him right to the very top of his whole household. So everything was in Joseph's hand that he owned. What a great witness for God he was in his workplace. Question, are you a great witness for God in your workplace? Is there any chance that the unbelievers that you work with will see through your service, see through your conscientious work, is there any possibility they will see Christ in you? Because this man saw Jehovah in Joseph. Now generally, of course, unbelievers doesn't turn up at church to see you and how you conduct yourself in church. They don't need to because they already see that on Monday morning in the workplace. So they don't need to come through these doors here to see you as a Christian. Every Monday morning they see you as a Christian, not in the place of worship, but in the place of work. Now, some may argue and say, well, they see everybody in the workplace. And that's true. But they do not judge everybody the way they judge you, do they? No, I don't think so. Why? Because they're expecting a higher standard from the professing Christian than everybody else. Did you notice in verse 5 that it says, The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Even though he was a pagan, even though he was an idol worshiper, even though he was a high-ranking official in a, a despotic society and all of that, yet God was pleased to bless him and prosper him not for his sake, but for Joseph's sake. And the reason why I say that is because if we are a good worker and if we conduct ourselves well in the workplace and if we're conscientious and if we're trustworthy and we're dependable and we're loyal and we're hardworking, then God can bless the place where we work. He can bless our company or our factory or our office or our wherever we work for our sake he can bless it you say well what if I'm self-employed well then the same principle applies only then it applies to those to whom you do business with or you trade with or you work through same principle in Ephesians chapter 6 Paul brings this whole ethos of the workplace, he brings it to the tensions of believers in Ephesus. Now you have to understand, Paul's writing during the time of the Roman Empire. And you've got to know that in that time, it was the norm. Slavery was the norm. One in four of all people in the Roman Empire at that time were slaves. 
one in four, a quarter of everybody in the Roman Empire. So that was the norm. And slavery then under the Roman Empire was not like in the Old Testament under, under the Jews. Because under the Jews, a slave or a servant was indentured. Uh, that is to say that if he was in debt, that the law of Moses said then you could pay off your debt by going to work for somebody, to be somebody's servant, somebody's slave. Now, there's all kinds of laws that God had put into place so that you couldn't be bad to your servant or your slave. You had to treat them well, treat them kindly, and treat them fairly. And it was time-limited. Either to you were able to work off that debt, or when the year of Jubilee came, which is every 50th year, then all slaves would go free. All debts would be cancelled. So everybody would go free. But under the Roman administration, it wasn't like that. If you were a slave, you were literally belonged to that master. They owned you. And they could do whatever they wanted with you. However they wanted, whenever they wanted. You were just like chattel. They owned you. And so they could abuse you in any shape, form, or fashion. And many of them were abused, horribly abused. But of course, if they paid a lot for you, then it was within their interest to try to look after you because you were a good investment. But they could change their mind about that at any time and do as they wished towards you. And so at that particular time, of course, when Paul's <coughs> preaching, that there were many, many Christian slaves in the Roman Empire. In fact, in the churches, the early church, a large percentage of the people would be slaves. And so Paul's writing to them here, telling them how to conduct themselves as slaves. Now, obviously, where slavery, thankfully, as a legal entity around the world, has been abolished. Uh, and that's largely due to Christianity in the end. Now, there are human trafficking goes on today and there's people who are treated as slaves and we know that even in Northern Ireland they're finding this out all the time but generally speaking it's abolished around the world it's not what it used to be uh, but it was certainly then that was the norm that was the case and by the way neither Paul or any of the New Testament writers in any way tried to get the slaves to rise up against it it would have been impossible anyway uh, because they, would, they, they wouldn't be able to do anything about it because they were very, very much kept under the heel of the mighty Roman Empire. And so there was no urging them to, to usurp their position. In fact, the opposite was true, as we'll see in a moment or two when we begin to read here, uh, that they were, to, they were to treat their master, their slave master, as if it was Christ they were working for. So whenever we go to read this here, obviously slavery is not today. But the principle of employee-employer is the same. So when we think of slave and master, then think today of employee-employer because the principles are exactly the same. All right. So let me just read here. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation just this portion. In Ephesians 6, 5 to 8, Paul says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters, with deep respect and fear. Now, when you, when you heard the context that I've just given you 
this is something, isn't it? I mean, this is just not your boss that employs you and you get paid a wage every week and you go home and forget about it the next day. I mean, you are literally held under the thumb of the slave owner. And yet Paul says, highly respect them with fear. Not, not, it doesn't mean with a cringing fear, but with a fear of not doing the right thing, not doing enough, not being a good model slave employee. That's what he said. Work hard. Sorry. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Why? Is that a big ask? Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Work hard, but not just to please your masters when they're watching. In the authorized version, it says, as as men pleasers, as I service to as men pleasers. <laughs> I, a couple of years ago, I think it was Johnny and I, we went down to PC World to, uh, to get a piece of equipment for the, for the church office. And normally, I don't know if you go to PC World much, but normally when you go and you're looking for somebody to help you, you can spend 10 minutes walking around that big building looking for some employee to give you a help you're nowhere to be found. I don't know where they hide out, but you can't find them. But that day, they were everywhere. As soon as we walked into the building, can I help you, sir? You know, I'm just right over here. If you need me, I'll be here. Then you went into the TV department. Somebody, can I help you, sir? I'm just right here if you need me. You walked to the telephones. Everywhere you went, there was an employee wanting to help you. So that's odd. And then we discovered the big bosses were in town. <laughs> the suits had arrived. And when the suits had arrived, suddenly everybody was on the floor working. And Paul says, you see, that's eye service, then pleasers, only doing it when the boss is around, to be seen as if, hey, see how good I am? He says, don't do that. When the boss is not around, he says, that's when you really need to be faithful and trustworthy and hardworking and conscientious, not just to catch the eye of the boss. And so he says, as slaves, doing the will of God with all your heart, not half-hearted, not apathetically, not <sighs> ho-hum, but with all of your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. What a difference it would make if you go into work tomorrow, you say, Lord, today I'm going to be working for you. As I'm going to be working for you, I'm going to do my very, very best because this is service unto you I'm doing. It would make a difference, wouldn't it? Then he says, remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do whether we are slaves or free. Even, even if whom we work for or the firm we work for, even if it doesn't treat us the best and doesn't reward us the best, he says, never mind. The Lord will reward us for the good that we do. And in verse 9, here's the other side of the coin. And in the same way, you masters must treat your slaves right. 
don't threaten them. Remember, you have the same master in heaven and he has no favorites. Now, obviously then, there were believers now who were now slave owners. Just that the slaves got saved, so some of the slave masters had got saved. A typical example of that would be, would be Philemon, the Christian businessman that Paul knew, that Onesimus, one of his slaves, his servants, stole something and ran away and met up with Paul in prison. And Paul led him to Christ and then sent him back to Philemon, his slave owner friend, with a lovely letter, which is a little book of Philemon, Philemon, it's in your Bible, asking him not to receive him back just as a slave, but as a son in the faith. He says, he's my son in the faith, so treat him nice, treat him well. Even though he stole from you, he says, by the way, anything he owes you, he says, put it in my account. I'll pay for it. So again, Paul's not getting the slaves to rise up against their masters. Not at all. And in fact, in, in Colossians, in Colossians chapter uh, 3, the Apostle Paul uh, reiterates this. In fact, in Ephesians, he talks about wives and husbands, parents and children, slaves and masters, and he does the exact same thing in Colossians chapter 3. And so he's speaking the same message to two different churches. Now, of course, all the letters we have of the Apostle Paul, that wasn't all that he preached. We have never heard every sermon Paul ever preached, but the Holy Spirit records in these two books this part of what he preached in order to make sure we get the message. It's almost word for word. In, Colossians, or in Colossians, Colossians, I beg your pardon, chapter 3, verse 18, Wives, submit to your own husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be bitter towards them. Same as in Ephesians. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Same as in Ephesians. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not with eye service as men pleasers, who use the same terminology but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. For whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But, what, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, for there is no partiality. Masters, give your bond servants what is just and fair, knowing did you also have a master in heaven? And then the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. If I could read from verse 9 first. But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but now are the people of God, who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from flesh and lusts, which war against the soul, having your con conduct honorable among Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, 
glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether as to the king as supreme, or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience towards God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you're beaten for your faults you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. And so we see here that Paul and Peter are making a point, particularly in the workplace, that we should serve there as if we're serving Christ at all times. Why? Because our Christianity is worked out in the public arena. It's worked out in the marketplace. How we live will speak volumes to others around us and others above us. We are ambassadors for Christ. <laughs> we are the living, breathing representatives of Jesus. Unbelievers will judge Christ and his gospel by our actions. Unbelievers will measure Christ and his gospel by the yardstick of our lives. You may say, well, that doesn't seem very fair. Actually, it is fair. How else would they judge Christ and his gospel unless through us? They don't go to church. They don't read the Bible. Very seldom do they pray. But we go to church. We read the Bible. We pray. We're the ones who boast about Christ. We're the ones who says the gospel is great. We're the ones who said Jesus changed us. So how else are they going to judge? Other than in the very first instance, it's going to be us they're going to judge, isn't it? They're going to judge Christ and his gospel by judging us. And so this is why Paul is trying to tell the slaves to live right and to do right and to be Christ-like in all your dealings. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel tremendously impressed uh, a number of kings that he, that he worked under. Now remember, Daniel was a captive, so he was a slave. And even though he was working in the palace, but nonetheless, he was a slave. And in chapter 6 of Daniel, it says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom and over these three three governors and over these three governors of whom Daniel was one. And the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. There was a spirit of excellence about how he did things. 
how he went about his business, how he conducted himself in the workplace. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm so that the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. They hated that, that this Hebrew slave was now going to be put in a position even over all of them, over the whole kingdom. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but note this, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. They looked at his work practices. They thought, let's catch him out. Let's see if he's as good as the king thinks he is. You know, maybe, I'm paraphrasing here, maybe he's good in front of the king, but what's he like behind the scenes? We'll keep an eye on him. And they did, and they watched, and they could find no fault. He conducted himself perfectly in front of everybody. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. They couldn't find any fault with his work, and they tried, but they couldn't. Now they're going to have to try to find fault with his worship. And there was no fault with his worship, but now they hate him, and they set a trap for him, which we don't need to go into, as you know which he came out of wonderfully well, didn't he? In, in chapter 8, uh, many years later, under another king, Belshazzar, uh, Daniel suddenly has this strange vision. Uh, it's a vision of a, of a goat with two horns, and one horn was higher up than the other. And it was a powerful goat. And it just destroyed everything around it. Nothing could, could hurt it. Until another goat came with one horn, a big horn. And that goat charged it and smashed into it and destroyed it. And then that goat with one horn, then the horn was destroyed and it was broken into four. And he was struggling to understand this. And God sent the angel Gabriel, the messenger angel, to explain it. We haven't time to go into it, but it was about kingdoms. It was about kingdoms, and the two horns was the Medo-Persian kingdom. And the one horn goat was the, was the Grecian kingdom of Alexander the Great. And he died at age 33, and his kingdom was divided into four. So it's all about kingdoms, which I don't have time to go into, really. But at the end of it, and, and we don't know for sure, but he was a man of prayer, and he certainly was a man who gave himself to fasting. At one point, he fasted 21 days to get an answer from God. And so in all probability, he was fasting, trying to find the answer to this as well, before Gabriel came, like he did the last time. And it says right at the end of the chapter, and I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. See, probably he was worn out. Worn out, he was tired, he maybe was fasting, he was physically run down, he was weary, he was weak. He had come through this most marvelous experience. 
But this is the part that gets me. But afterwards I arose and I went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. But afterwards I arose and I went about the king's business. It did not stop him from doing his business for the king. Even though it was a tremendous spiritual experience, mighty, and even though it took a lot out of him physically and mentally and maybe emotionally, but it didn't stop him from continuing doing his work for the king. And so as believers, if we're in a job and working for a boss, let's continue no matter what good happens to us or what bad happens to us, let's continue to do it and to serve that way because that's what God wants us to do. You remember Esther in chapter 5 of Esther, how that the plot was hatched to destroy all the Jews? Mordecai says to Esther, you got to go to the king. You're one of the king's harem. And he had many women in his harem, and you're one of them. you got to go to this king. You're a Jewess. you got to tell him about this plot. Remember how she was frightened to do that at the start? And he says, well, if you don't do it, God will raise up somebody else. But don't think this will spare your life. So she says, well, every, all you Jews with me fast. You fast. And then I'll do it. Remember how she went in? And how the king put his scepter out to her, which meant he had accepted her. If he hadn't have put the scepter out, it could have meant her death. Because you were not supposed to go in unannounced. Because all in that harem, all those would be queens for a day or a month or a year. And it wasn't her turn. She wasn't asked. But there was something about how she conducted herself. There was something about, it wasn't the first time he had been in contact with Esther, no doubt. But there was something about Esther, how she handled herself and the way she went into the king. And we can see that after it was an acceptor how she did it. But there was something about that that he held out the scepter and she was received onto him. And that saved the life of the Jews in the kingdom. You remember in 2 Kings 5 how that Naaman, that great Syrian general, how raiding bands and out into Israel and had brought back captives and they had brought back a little Hebrew girl to be his wife's, miss, his wife's little maid and I was smitten with leprosy. Remember what she said? I'll paraphrase for you. Would that my Lord was in Samaria. There's a prophet there who would heal him of his leprosy. Now think for a moment. She had been plucked from her home. For all we know, maybe her parents were murdered. She had been taken captive into another land by these rank pagans as a little slave girl. She could have been so bitter and so angry. She could have said, do you know what? I'm so glad that Naaman's got leprosy. I hope he dies with it. I hope he has a long, terrible, painful death. But she didn't. As a little maid, as a little slave girl, she served faithfully in that household. 
And when she saw her master smitten with leprosy, there was something about her wee heart went out to him. And she says, I wish that you were in Samaria because there's a prophet there could heal you. And you know the rest of the story, how he went and got beautifully cleansed by the Lord in the Jordan River and became a believer in Jehovah, the Hebrew God. How she conducted herself in her workplace changed that man's life and absolutely impacted him for the rest of his life. So remember that Joseph and Daniel and Esther and the little maid, they were all slaves. But in the workplace, they made a tremendous difference to those above them and those around them. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 13 and 16, that we are to be salt and light in this word. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a, a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. that they may see your good works. No better place to see your good works than at work. Now let me finish by going back to where we started. How was Joseph's salt and light to Potiphar? He conducted himself well, didn't he? He worked hard. He was faithful, he was loyal conscientious, all of those things. But he also had an ethos. He also had ethics. He also had a conscience because of his God. Because he served the living God. For example, when Potiphar's wife desperately tried to seduce him, here's what he said. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And so, in front of Potiphar's wife, he would not compromise. And he would not betray his boss. Never mind the Lord God of heaven. He would not even betray his boss. Could have got away with it. He was just a slave. And it says he was a handsome man, which is why she was after him, but he didn't. And so he was salt and light in that household. Now she despised him for it, we know that, and she lied about him, and he got thrown into prison. But while he was in prison, guess what? God blessed him, God honored him, he dug himself well, and he became like a, we would say, a trustee in prison. Well, the prison guard made him a trustee, and he was over all the prisoners in the prison. Such was his way he handled things, the way he conducted himself. It was evident, and they could see that. And so he was salt and light, even in prison. 
he was salt and light to Pharaoh. Remember how after those years in prison, how that Pharaoh had a dream? And in Pharaoh's dream, he saw these seven fat cows and seven lean cows, and the lean cows ate the fat cows, and then he saw seven stalks of big, plump, fat corn, and then he saw seven wizened up, skinny, dried up sticks of corn, and the wizened, skinny sticks of corn ate the big, fat, plump corn. And he was puzzled. He couldn't understand this. And he called all his wise men and all his <laughs> terrifiants and everybody and said, explain this to me, but they couldn't. And then the butler says, ah, king, he says, forgive me. He says, when I was in prison, there was a Hebrew slave there. And he says, the beggar and me had a dream. And we didn't understand that, but he did. And he told his interpretation of the dream. And you know what? It happened exactly as he said it. Pharaoh says, send for him. And so he shaved and dressed and came before the king. So how's he going to conduct himself before Pharaoh? Hmm, he's going to do it very well indeed. And he stands before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, basically, you're the interpreter, interpreter of dreams. Tell me, tell me what my dream means. And here's what Joseph says. <laughs> Joseph said, it is not in me. In other words, I can't do this myself. It's not in me to do this. But God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. You want an answer? God will give you the answer. Sure, he'll use me, but it's not in me. It's not me. It's God it can work through me. See how he conducts himself. See how he honors God in this. See how he didn't come in with a swagger, saying, ah, I'm the only one in the whole country can interpret your dreams, boy. No, no. He was humble before Pharaoh. And then it goes on when he tells him his dreams. And, and Pharaoh's amazed. In fact, he says the two dreams are one. And here's what the dreams are. It's going to be seven fat years of harvest and seven lean years. And he says, oh, king, here's what I would do. I would advise you to put somebody in charge who's wise to handle all this. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh says to Joseph, Insomuch as God has shown you all this, there is none as wise and discerning as you. And you shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said, See, I have sent you over all the land of Egypt. Genesis 41, that is. Hmm. Never once did Joseph in his workplace, listen to me, never once did he compromise his beliefs, integrity, his ethics. Never once. Never once before Potiphar, never once before Potiphar's wife, never once before the jailer, never once before Pharaoh. Never one time during the whole 14 years when he was the executive officer that dished out all the grain all over Egypt and into other countries. No wonder God used him mightily. What a difference a slave boy made. 
not only did he save Egypt, he saved his brethren, he saved Israel, he saved the whole nation through which the Messiah would come. So as we close, you see the vast majority of believers, it will be their workplace will be the place of their most effective ministry. I stand before you tonight as a pastor behind a pulpit. The vast majority of believers will never be a pastor stand behind a pulpit. Ever. They'll be in the workplace, out there in the marketplace. And that's where your ministry will be. Out there. You can't be salt and light in here. You don't need to be salt and light. And we've got salt and light in here. You don't need to be. It's out there, isn't it? It's the workplace. That's where you're salt and light. Now, I know we all moan and groan about our jobs sometimes. Oh, that job. Oh, I hate that job. That job. Oftentimes, people come to me and say, I say, hold on a minute. Maybe that's where God wants you to be salt and light. Maybe later down the road you have something else, but maybe right now he's testing you to see, are you going to be salt and light in there? You say, David, that's why I'm sick and tired because I'm salt and light and I'm getting hated for it. Well, just keep being salt and light. You'll impact somebody. A pastor friend of mine many years ago, he lost his pastorate, lost his church. I think he was treated abominably really do he was a young man at a time who went to Bible school went through Bible school got involved in church life eventually became a pastor it was all he had ever done it's all he ever knew he had no other skills and suddenly he's out of a job if I could use that term because not only was it his ministry but it was his very livelihood and he had a family. And he told me. He said, what was I going to do? He says, I didn't know what I was going to do. And he says, I prayed to the Lord and says, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not skilled in anything else. But Lord, can I ask you to get me a job that the hours will suit me for my family? And that's all I can say. I can't go into the background of that, but that was what he specifically prayed. And he says, you know, I fasted and I prayed, and then suddenly, suddenly, he says, this idea came to me. He says, I've never thought about it in a million years. And as far as I knew, once the idea came to me, I researched and I found there's probably only maybe two people in the whole of Great Britain doing it. So he says, I researched it, I read up on it, I went on the internet, I bought books, I read and read and read. I did everything I could to see, can I make a go of this? And the time came when I launched it, and it took off. And he says, do you know what? And it's still taken off, by the way, after all these years. He says, do you know what? It gave me a living that I could only dream of. <laughs> he says, in all my years of ministry, I couldn't even have thought of this. And he says, even better than that. He says, it's given me an opportunity in this particular field to lay hands and pray for people 
more people than I've ever done in all the years that I did behind a pulpit. And he says, God was doing great things that I never, ever thought I would see again. So God can do great things, can't he? There's nothing impossible with him. And maybe where God has got you today is maybe the right place at the right time just for you to be that salt and light, to conduct yourself, to handle yourself in the workplace. I remember my old boss in the place where I worked, and we had to do, it was bonus work, so you had to, I worked in a tire factory, you had to mix so many tires every day, and you made above that, then you got a good bonus. And there was times it came to, just to the point where if I had to made another, say, two, three tires, I'd have got a big bonus. And the boss would have came at the end of the shift, and he says, right, David, how many have you got today? And I told him, he says, close but no cigar. But he says, he looked around, he says, but I could put you in for another two or three, and that would just take you over the edge. I says, no, can't do that. He says, go on. He says, nobody will ever know. He says, I don't tell anybody. He says, says, it happens all the time. He says, do it all the time. He says, it's a big factor. Nobody will know. I says, no, I'll know. And God will know. Can't do it. And never did do it. But do you know what? When we're leaving, those are the people that respected you the most. Because you weren't a hypocrite. You lived it out in front of them. Even if it cost you something to do it, you lived it out in front of them. And they respected that. You see, if I had done what he said... You see, the first time later on, if I had to start to witness, he said, oh, hold on a minute now, hold on a minute now. And then you wouldn't have a leg to stand on because you're no different than anybody else. So the workplace, not just the worship place you come to on Sunday, but the workplace out there is where you live it out. That's where you walk it out. That's where your walk has to match your talk, isn't it? Because we can all talk among each other But out there, they don't want to hear your talk. They want to see your walk, don't they? And so through Joseph and all of these I've given you tonight, be encouraged. Paul said to slaves to do this, to work for your master as if you're working for Christ himself. How much more should we, working for an earthly employer, do it right? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege and honor that you have given many of us of the workplace you have placed us in. Help us to be conscientious. Help us, Lord, to to show others, Lord, the way that it should be, the way that it can be done, that we may be a living, walking testimony of faithfulness, of honesty, of integrity. And Lord, we know that that will come back to you and will honor you and glorify you. So we do give you thanks. Thank you for your grace. Forgive us for the many times, Lord, when we have failed to do that. In our humanity, Lord, we have missed the mark. Forgive us. But help us, Lord, tomorrow as we go into the workplace to be a shining example of how it should be. We ask this for your honor and for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.